Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 3, 4-10. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the reading of God's word. And thanks be to God for the reading of God's word. Thank you, Tim, for reading the word for us today. Well, church, happy daylight saving. The one said ever, except few screamed out. <laughs> happy spring forward. I hope you're alert and awake today, today as we gather today. In light of daylight saving, I have the shortest sermon before you today. Do the right, well, if you got too excited, I'm offended. <laughs> no, do the right thing. Sin is bad. God is good. Let's pray. Really, that's it. But no, there's so much more than that in today's text that we are about to dive in. Yes, it's very easy for us just to talk about it, right? Do the right thing. God is good. Sin is bad. But it's not that we don't know what is right or wrong, but sometimes we just don't have power to do what is right. Um, I quoted him before, a Jewish philosopher, Jacob Needleman, actually who is born of here, Philly, He's a professor at a San Francisco University. He wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Good? In that book, he criticized many modern self-help books. It's not that readers don't know what to do, but they just cannot summon up the power to do what is good. Let me give you an example. How's your New Year resolution going today? I don't think any of you guys said, my New Year's resolution this year, hmm, let me think. I want to rob a bank this year. I don't think any of you said that. If you did, let's talk. No, we shouldn't talk about it. I don't think any of you just thought, well, this is what I want to do. No, I'm sure your goal, if you said anything, are a good thing. But how is that going? Some of you guys say, come on, Jin, it's 2021. Who thinks about New Year's resolution anymore? Why do you say that? Because you've tried many times and saw that it's not going to come true. Many things that you've said it out. So in other words, we know often what is good, but oftentimes we don't have power to summon up to defeat and to fight for what is good. In today's section that we are about to study, 
John is laying out what sin is and how we ought to struggle with it. And as we struggle, where is the hope in the middle of all that? We know God is good and sin is bad, but it is hard for us to fight for holiness, to live righteously before him. Yet as we dive in, I pray that the Lord will convict your heart. This simple truth that we brush it off is not something that we can be indifferent about. Sin is toxic. It will always take you further than you and I want to go. So may the Lord speak to us. In today's section that we are about to look at from verse 4 to 10, it's two sections that are actually parallel to one another. So verse 8 to 10 actually doubles down on what John says to 4 to 7. So it's in a sense it's a very same message. So I combine the two and then I'll walk us through where John is taking us today. Three things that we learned today. First, the problem of moral and spiritual autonomy. We'll see that in verse 4 and first half of verse 8. The problem of moral and spiritual autonomy. Second, the tension between a life in sin and the new life in Christ. The tension between a life in sin and the new life in Christ. We'll see the 5 and 6 and also second half of 8 through 9. Lastly, the hope for righteousness and love, verse 7 and 10. The problem of moral and spiritual autonomy, a tension between life and sin and life in Christ. And lastly, the hope for righteousness and love. So let's dive in right away. First, the problem of moral and spiritual autonomy. Read verse 4 with me and jump down to verse 8. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What is John saying here? Here, John is dealing with individuals and false teachers who are indifferent to sin. These group of people had audacity to believe that it is okay to indulge in sinful lifestyle and also a fellowship God just as if nothing has happened. They, the sin is amoral. It's no big deal. And John is saying, no way. It does not work like that. Everyone who sins breaks the law. Sin is not something that you and I can be indifferent about today. How does John define what sin is? Here John says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Is lawless, lawlessness simply the same thing as breaking the law? Well, then it's kind of redundant, right? Then it's John saying, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is breaking the law. No. It's much more than that. Yes, the Greek word anomia only used here in the first John in this place is the word, yes, lawlessness, the absence of the law, but far more than that. It is the willful disregard, willful rebellion against God's moral and spiritual economy by exhortation of the autonomy. So in other words, Lawlessness is complete disregard of God's moral universe by the exhortation of self-autonomy. We want to be the one who determine what is right and wrong. These false teachers and individuals thought, oh, it's okay to indulge in sin. Oh, yeah, then you can have just as good as fellowship with God. 
No way. God's moral universe does not work like that. We have this rebellion nature within us. We want to exalt ourselves and want to make the moral spiritual autonomy and authority on our own. If you're a parent to any two, three-year-old, you see your children's rebellious nature. You constantly have to teach them obey. And you don't even have to be a parent to know that. I know myself enough that I want to have a final word. I want to be the one that makes the more the important decision. I want to be the judge of my life. Church, you are about to dive in in our Bible reading plan this week. You are about to dive in the book of Judge. In that book, one of the most pronounced themes that you will see is this. That everyone did what was right according to their own eyes. They get to be the judge. They want to be, have the final spiritual autonomy on their own. Lawlessness. Where is this lawlessness rebellion came from? Look what John says in verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. What does John mean by is this, that from the moment of the proud rebellion, the devil stood against God, he has been seeking the spiritual autonomy. I get to determine what is right and wrong. Did the devil stop there? Not at all. Devil comes to who? Adam and Eve. Hey, by the way, Adam and Eve, why do you have to depend on God? Take this fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Now, you get to decide what is right and wrong. Now, you get to be the final captain of your soul. Now, you get to be the judge of your life. You get to have this spiritual and moral autonomy on your own. This lawlessness that's been rampant, that Satan has been tempting us, devil has been tempting us to seek that autonomy on our own. Church, it is. It is a good thing. Being like God in his character and nature is a good thing. But becoming like God as the final judge of what is right and wrong is a horrible thing. And often we want that. I get to decide what is right and wrong. Where did you see that? From the beginning, proud devil led the rebellion, came to Adam and Eve. Hey, now you get to decide what is good and evil. Take this fruit. Now, we see, you will see that in the book of Judge, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Lawlessness. Here in the first John, this false teacher and group of individuals thought it's lawlessness. I do not care about God's moral and spiritual economy. I get to do whatever I want, then it's okay. And that's not the end. Look where we are today as a society. Um, perhaps 18th century thinker, great German philosopher Immanuel Kant, as great as his philosophy was, he did a lot of damage to us. And he argued for the moral autonomy. There is no objectivity in morality. You get to decide what is right or wrong. The 18th century, now where we are 21st century, we live in the world of moral ambiguity. It's hard to know what is right and wrong. And yet, it is not our job. Now it's very easy for us to pat our back. Oh, yeah. That's just the world. What about us right now where we are? John is not writing this letter to the world or the government. He's writing this epistle to the church in Ephesus. Even in right now where we are in our own, deep in our heart, we have this rebellion nature in us that we want to decide what is right. We want to indulge in sin. We want to entertain in the pleasures of this world as much as we want. And yet we think, oh, yeah, I can still have fellowship with God just as fine. It's no big deal. 
lawlessness. Church, where are you today? Do you have the willful rejection of God's law? You might not say that vocally, but functionally the way you carry your life often reveals the very this rebellion nature within us. As appetizing as that power would be, I hope and pray that we will confess before the Lord. This lawlessness, there's no way around it. What does John say? It's of the devil. I wish I can be more gentle, but not at all. John's very firm about it. This is what devil has been doing from the beginning. And as a children of God, we cannot do that. Now then, where is the objective answer lying? That is the spiritual universe that God has created, all autonomous, that we can do whatever we want? Not at all. Second, the tension between a life in sin and a new life in Christ. Read verse 5 to 6 and then jump down to second half of verse 8. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. In him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Second half of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. First, we must wrestle with some theological tension in this verse. Majority of translation actually translates verse 6 and 9 this way. They put it, verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has neither seen him nor known him. That makes me feel like, uh-oh, I, I know I'm saved. I, I know Jesus died for me, but I think I'm pretty sure I sinned ever since then. Whoa, does it mean that I'm not in Christ anymore? Verse 9, majority of trends that I put you this, whosoever born of God does not commit sin. How do you reconcile that with also 1 John 1, 9? Our God is faithful and just God. That when we confess our sins, he forgives us. Where, how do you resolve that tension, church? Here at NIV has very helpful clarification for us that he puts verse 1 as, no one who lived in him keeps on sinning. Verse 9, it adds by saying, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. In other words, as Christian believers of God, John is not saying that we will never sin anymore, but we will continue to struggle to not sin. We will continue to raise war against sin. So it, when you understand this passage, oh, so this does not mean that we'll never sin again, yet we will struggle, we will continue to struggle, we will not try our best to not sin, yet it will be our battle. So it's, if I resolve all the tension right now, it's easy for us to pat ourselves in the back. Oh, yeah, of course, Jesus loves me, I sin, oh, God forgives me, it's no big deal. Yes, it's actually a serious deal. John, verse 6, what does it say? No one in Christ keeps on sinning. So church, what is the sin that you are just keep repeating over and over and over again? I'm not talking about those that you sin every five years. You know your besetting sins, your default. I've eluded this in this pulpit at least a couple times. But today I want to dive in a little bit deeper on that. What is your besetting sins? For some of you, it's an endless comparison the thief of all joy, whether it be the beauty, whether it be the wealth, whether it be the intellect, that will either leave you prideful or make you feel, 
ugly, dumb, and poor. There's endless comparison. Our ego feeds that. For some of you, your besetting sin is what? Perhaps it's the sexual temptation and lust that you're constantly indulging in. For some of you, what is your besetting sin? Maybe perhaps that endless self-pity party of loneliness. Perhaps some of you, your besetting sin, what is it? Just like John says, the lawlessness. You have complete disregard of God's law and living however you think what is right and wrong. Or perhaps some of you, it's the anger, the temper issue. You just blow up. You lose it often. No one who abides in Christ continues to keep on sinning. What is the besetting sin? You just let go. Let me give you a cycle of besetting sins. Passion, discouragement, numbnessness, dual life. Let me walk you through one by one. First, the passion or zeal. This is how this stage looks like. You say, oh man, God, I cannot believe I fell from you. I cannot believe that I'm struggling with this. God, help me. This is terrible. God, by your power, I want to overcome. I'm sorry that I grieve you. You come to this point initially because you know your sin is terrible before the Lord. But as you struggle over, it often leads to the discouragement, despair. God, here I am. Here Jen again, oh God. I've messed up so many times. I don't even know whether I'll ever overcome this. Perhaps some of you find yourself here. You've raised war against your besetting sin so many times. But you're at a point of discouragement, despair. I, this may be something that I'll just live with it. I'll never overcome. And then now it becomes dangerous. It becomes the point of numbness or callousness. What happened by this point? You don't really say it with your tongue, but deep down in your mind, this is what you think. Well, I mean, it's okay. God forgives us anyway. I mean, yes, it's bad, but what am I going to do about it? There's no longer sensitive heart became calloused and numb. The danger of this stage is what this German pastor, theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. Church, grace was costly. It took the life of our God. Our God died to rescue us from our sin. But then we take the costly grace as cheap grace. Eh, not a big deal. God forgives us anyway. We become numb and calloused. And then eventually, when you just indulge in this besetting sin, you come to a point of dual life. Your private life and public life do not look like each other at all. When Jesus called Pharisees hypocrite, he came from the play term. When you act, you wear a mask. You're a completely different persona. You become just like that. The danger of your life is that by this time, you have worked through all the theological loop. That in the end, you say you might live completely terrible life, lawless life before the Lord. But in public. You do not only have the tongue of angels, but you have the tongue of prophet and the apostle. You say, God is good. Jesus loves you. Yes, God is great. While you proclaim all the goodness of God in your private life, you are just have completely disregard for God's law and indulge in the sin cycle. The discouragement, despair, and the passion and zeal initially leads to discouragement, despair, to numbness, callous, to the dual life. Church, God forbid. Do you see how John takes it seriously? Let me read it. Before I present you glorious hope, I don't want to resolve the two sins. Why don't you dwell in that? Let me read this passage one more time. 5 to 6 and 8 to 9. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The reason Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is God's word for us. So church, if, my, may, if I may adopt the poet Dylan Thomas who said, Raise, raise against the dying of the light. Do not go gentle into the good night. If I may baptize it, yeah, raise, raise against the sins. Do not go gentle into the besetting sins. Do not give up. Fight against that. And as we fight, let me present you the glorious hope we have in Christ now. See here, you notice every time John talks about sin, he also brings Christ. But Christ appeared, verse 5. But Christ has come in verse, verse 8 and half. The reason why the Son of God appeared is to destroy the Satan's work, devil's work. And what does he say in verse 9? No one who is born of God keeps on sinning. Why? What does John say? Because God's seed remains in them. Praise be to God. What does that mean? Let me explain it to you. The metaphor of a seed that John is using is this. It's about when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, God's nature is imputed in you. And he will continually make you more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And because God's nature is in us, it will lead us to transformation. And how does Christian transformation look like? Three things. It's organic, it's gradual, and it's inevitable. Let me walk you through a little bit. Chris, because God's seed is in us, it's, does, it says, does it say God's brick is in us? No. It is God's seed in us. If you add a pile of brick, it looks like you're growing. pile of brick is really growing. But is there life in it? No way. It's just mechanical. As great as technology is, is there a life in it? No. But seed, when you plant a seed, it has life in it. It has power to transform you. And Jesus here, John is saying God's seed, nature is in you when you trust in Christ. It will organically grow and transform you day by day. And yet at the same time, it's gradual. Have you ever planted a seed in your garden? When I was a child, mom, let's plant this bean. 20 seconds later, nothing's happening. What's wrong with this? Day later, I come, still nothing. Two days later, I come, nothing. Third, fourth, a week later, I see tiny thing grow up, grow up. Tiny little thing, gradual. But when you drop an acorn in a bare mountain, 500 years later, the mountain will be filled with the trees. It will gradually but surely grow. Because God's seed is in us. It has power to make us more in the likeness of Christ. Lastly, it's inevitable. It's not, it's not just Thanos in the Avengers cries out, I am inevitable. Christian work, the God's work, because God's seed is imputed in us. What does Romans 8.29 say? God has predetermined all believers to confirm them in the likeness of Jesus Christ. He has promised us. So church, the Christian transformation happens because God's seed is in us. Yes, rage war against your sins. 
Don't take your besetting sins for granted. Don't ever come to the point of callousness, numbness, and living a dualist, hypocritical life. Rage war against it. Yet at the same time, know that it is not you who takes away your sin. It is the God's nature, God's seed in, implanted in us. The righteous God died to secure that for us. That God himself through the power of Holy Spirit will transform us day by day. So church, what is your besetting sins? Do not lose heart. I'm sure some of you struggle that for so many years that you come to a point you're like, yeah, God, I don't even know what to do. No, when you abide in him, God's seed that's planted in you will continually grow day by day. It is inevitable because you are children of God. Do you know this glorious truth? If you think raising war against your sin is all up to you, it will crush you. You will fall into the legalistic pattern. At the same time, it is God. His seed is planted in us that will transform us day by day. Lastly, let's take a look at the hope that God gives us. Read verse 7 and 10. The hope for righteousness and love. Verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Here, God, God, John's command and exhortation is very simple, actually. Commit to him. Do not let anyone lead you astray. Keep doing the right thing. Commit to righteousness and love. But, 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 I hear big, fat but in the middle of it. Do you realize John's language here? He's not just twisting your arm. Commit to it. Commit to it. Do it. You can do it. Do you see how language he's using? He's using the familial language. Love your brother and sister. Dear child, you are God's child. It's the relationship that will transform you. It's the relation that gives you hope because you have the relationship as a child of God to our Father. Church, child resembles their father. When I was young, before I was even elementary school kid, my dad has been pastoring all my life, I know. I guess I tried to act like dad. I don't know. My church members, when I was like six, five, six year old, my nickname was, oh, little Pastor Jin. <laughs> I guess I look like him. If, you, if I show you my dad picture, I guess I look like him. And I walk like him. And the other day, about a month ago, I see Brian family. They're coming second service, I assume. Brian family walking in. So Jared walks in. Jared typically wears a jacket with a khaki pants. He walks in like this. And then right behind him, his son, James, khaki pants, son, just like this. <laughs> Why does the son resemble their father? Because they have the relationship. They want, I just want it to be like my dad. And perhaps you might not have the greatest earthly father, but perhaps you have been in love before. When you love somebody, you admire not only their look, but their personhood, their character, their persona, that you're like, oh, wow, I just want to be like you. Their relationship compelled you to do what is right. 
And that's what John is saying. Dear God's child, our God is righteous. Be like him. Don't take John's exhortation as a simply to-do list. But see the relationship. Commit to the relationship that John is exhorting us today. See, I have read many books by a New York Times columnist named David Brooks. Um, I've seen him live talk. He's one of the thinkers that I follow quite a bit. But after I read his book, second, The Second Mountain, I left myself wondering, is he a Christian or what after all? He doesn't write any Christian thing per se. Um, and I saw his interview. He described himself by a wandering Jew and a very confused Christian. So I'm about to quote him, but I'm just saying all this to let you hear with a grain of salt because I think nonetheless what he says is a very good implication for our character transformation. He, in this book, it's all about moral formation, but we can might as well adopt it as a spiritual formation as well. This is what David Brooks says in his book, The Second Mountain. In this way, moral formation is not individual, it is relational. Character is not something you build sitting in a room thinking about the difference between right and wrong and about your own willpower. Character emerges from our commitment. Commitment is a promise made from love. Thus, the commitment is this, falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falter. Church, Chelton, would you commit to relationship with our Heavenly Father? Just doing it, just pulling yourself up by bootstrap does not work defeating your besetting sins. You've tried them many, many, many times. Where is hope and strength and where do you get the power to do all this that God has called us to do? Verse 7, the one who does what is right is righteous. Why? Just as he, our God, is righteous. Church, Jesus Christ, the righteous one became sin for us so that the sinful one may become righteous. That's what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. Just as he is righteous. You don't know where to begin? Look to him. It is him who has saved us from the penalty of sin at the cross when he cried out, it is finished. And it is him who is saving us today from the power of sin that has hold of you. He is saving you day by day, and it is him who will save you even from the presence of sin when he comes back once again. Maranatha, come, come soon, our Lord Jesus Christ. So look to him, the righteous one who became sin for us, so the sinful one may find righteousness in him. That is our hope where we can begin today. Church, how are you doing before God? Do you seek for the spiritual autonomy, moral autonomy? I want to do whatever I want to do. I want to indulge in sin and serve God at the same time. John is calling out, it does not work that way. Do not seek the spiritual and moral autonomy. That's of the devil. But continue to strive to wrestle with that. Realize the incompatibility between your life in sin and the new life in Christ. Rage war against your sins as you rage war against it. Know that it is not you 
who has power to change you. But God's seed of the righteousness that is in you will day by day, organically, gradually, and yet inevitably transform you in the likeness of our Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do not lose your heart in your battle. Let us walk victorious before the Lord. Let's pray together. God, there is lawlessness within me as well, O oh Lord, I confess. I don't know often why it is so okay. I mean, I don't quite say it, O oh Lord. But while I know in my life that sin is bad, Lord, I am so prone to wander and indulge in the pleasure of sin. God, I lift up our Chelton body before you. As we talked about besetting sins, you know their heart. You know what they struggle so much. And perhaps they're at the point of discouragement and despair. Or perhaps they will progress to numbness. They don't, they don't even care anymore. God forbid, none of us, I pray, they will live the dualistic lifestyle. But wherever we are today, O oh Lord, remind us that your seed of righteousness is in us. And day by day, you will transform us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to not lose heart. Help us to take that sin seriously. But even more than just taking that sin seriously, help us to look to the righteousness of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become righteous. May the glorious truth will liberate us from our willpower-driven obedience. But I pray that we will surrender ourselves before you, that we will behold the cross of Jesus Christ until it begins to melt our heart. I pray that we will sit at the foot of the cross until it begins to transform us. I pray that we will never take that for granted. Thank you, Jesus, for all you have done, O oh Lord. Take our heart. It is yours, O oh Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen.